We sure are living in interesting times. Um, I don't know if you're following the news. Whether you love Trump or hate Trump, it's an interesting thing to watch the world go crazy. I saw on the Drudge Report, uh, which is not a recommended news site necessarily, I uh, just gotta say, it used to be a good place to get interesting information, but they kind of went their own way there. But, but um, you know, headlines uh, today, you know, who had it worse, Jesus, Christ, or Donald Trump? <laughs> well, and if you're brave enough to click on the article, as I was, um, <laughs> It, 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 you know what, it's, something smelled fishy to me and I'll tell you why. Because you know, the article was sort of touting that Christians are comparing Donald Trump's experience exactly to that of Jesus Christ. That sounds to me like uh, some, I don't know any Christian that I know in the world that would care, compare Jesus to Donald Trump or any other person on the planet ever for any reason whatsoever. Uh, like the Christians that I know, maybe I have a weird group of Christian friends, you're all just a bunch of weirdos uh, with me, but um, you, you, I, I can answer the question, who had it worse, Donald Trump or, well, think about this, when Jesus died on the cross, every sin that Donald Trump committed, every single one of them was put on our savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, your sin was too. And every person that ever lived in the history of the world, was all the sin was put on Jesus Christ where he died on a cross. Like to say that to a, to a Christian, let alone saying Christians are saying this, but to a Christian, that's, that is blasphemous. It's like ridiculous uh, to say such a thing. I'm not sure Christians are saying that. I bet you there's a bunch of press people that thought, oh, this will be good click bait, you know, and uh, let's compare Donald Trump to Jesus. And, uh, and, and then, you know, you could, go, you could go on and on and talk about how Donald Trump's relishing in the moment. He's saying, yeah, cuff, he wants to be cuffed because it's great publicity and he'll probably get elected for president if they cuff him. And like, there's all kinds of crazy news out there. And, and um, you know what all that just reminds me, no matter what side you're on, right or left, pro, you know, progressive or conservative or whatever, I think that, you know, America, you know, has very much long ago ceased to be good. Um, you know, when did, when did America cease from being good? That's a good question. To, we could talk about that for hours, I guess. It reminds me of Alexis de Tocqueville back in uh, the 19th century French diplomat and political scientist. He, um, he came to the United States from France to see where he could find the greatness. What made this country so great? And um, I, I quote this oft because it's, it is kind of an interesting observation and, and I think he nailed it. He nailed where the greatness of our country came from. And he, he went high and low, far and wide over this country to search out her greatness. He said this, I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her commodious harbors, her ample rivers, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. I sought for the greatness and genius of America in the public school system and her institutions of learning, and it was not there. I sought for her greatness and genius of America in her democratic Congress, her matchless constitution, and it was not there. It was not until I went into the churches of America, heard her pulpits flame with righteousness, did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Almost prophetic, really, in what he said, uh, because I think there was truth to that. Our nation founded by people who were not just deists, as so many people like to try to, you know, say, but these were guys who believed the Bible, believed in Jesus Christ, the founders of our nation. And, and there's a rewriting of history. You'll find people say, oh, that never really happened and all this stuff, but, but it did. And there's all kinds of evidence of that. But, um, but there was a goodness uh, that did help. It's not that we were ever sinless. Uh, you know, Americans are, are just like everybody else. We're sinful. But at least there was a season where we said we, we need to do the right thing. And, um, and we uh, let not just anyone dictate our morality. It actually, our morality came from the Bible. 
But then somewhere along the way, we slowly but surely started getting away from that. And so now we find ourselves in a place where you just can't even hardly recognize our nation. And, um, and you know, the, the hubbub and the stir, the trouble, like if you can imagine, I mean, you know, the, 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 the things that we're watching right now just makes me realize I love getting together on a Bible study, uh, looking at the scriptures and specifically focusing on the person of Jesus. Uh, can I just give us this word as we're entering into this new election season? Um, to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Um, I, I think that there's narratives out there that try to promote one thing versus another from all different sides. And I, I, I wonder how much of this is just a giant distraction for, to keep us from what we really need to be keeping our eyes on, and that is Jesus. Um, and if you wanna know what's good, if you wanna know what's true, uh, then we look to Jesus Christ and no greater chapter to see what Jesus did than our chapter before us, Matthew chapter 27. Um, what's going on? Well, we're, we're, we're kind of in the middle of the chapter. We, we um, tackled the first uh, 14 verses here in Matthew 27 uh, last week and we pick it up in verse 15. Um, you have to understand at this moment, Jerusalem's a buzz. Why is it a buzz? Because Jesus is there? Nope. Um, it's because it was Passover. Because of the Passover season, um, there would be a huge population that would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover from far and wide. Uh, people would travel from many, many hundreds of miles away just to be in Jerusalem during the Passover. There was excitement in the air. Uh, people didn't uh, know the secret things that were happening behind the scenes there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was, there was actually a small group. Um, before the day was over, everyone in Jerusalem would know something is up. Um, but this, this might just be arguably the biggest day or night in all of history. When Jesus was uh, apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, tried by the Romans, tried by the Jews, and eventually uh, flogged and taken to the cross and crucified. Biggest event, perhaps, in the history of the world. Um, and did they really know what was going on, the, the, the um, dramatic thing? I think they, they would. There's gonna be evidence of that as we get through this. Uh, you'd have to know something was up uh, before too long. So we see that. Um, and we, um, we see now entering into the story, um, and we saw a little bit Pontius Pilate's trial of Jesus. And we're gonna kind of pick that up here in verse 15. It says in verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. Um, the, the fifth, verse 15, the governor, of course, is Pontius Pilate. We talked about him last week, how there were those that said he, he was just a figment of the Bible's imagination until, of course, we were able to prove archaeologically in the 1960s, they found a stone with Pontius Pilate's name on it at Caesarea Maritima. Uh, it's a great, great story. But um, other than that, he was just kind of legend before that. And pe people that were contrary to the Bible, oh, the Bible made up this character, Pontius Pilate. Well, I love how that's been totally, um, you know, uh, shown to be false. But um, I, I want to get you up to speed. Now, it says here that, you know, he was wanting to release to the people a prisoner whom they would. Some scholars historically have said that there was a tradition where the Romans would release a prisoner um, to the Jews uh, to make them happy. The Romans were trying to, you know, quell the, um, the problem of the, you know, the radical uh, zealots who wanted to, you know, wipe out the Roman Empire. And so trying to show th things of kindness. Well, there's debate on that, whether this was a normal thing or was this just Pontius Pilate saying, man, I want to release one of the prisoners. Why would he want to do that? Well, I mentioned last week, Pontius Pilate already made three big goofs. We talked about how when he, when he was ordered by the Roman Empire to go and be the governor of that area, the first thing he did was he went up to the Temple Mount with all their Roman insignias and standards and the Jews said, idols on the Temple Mount. And, they said, and, he, and he said, hey, you guys, calm down or else we'll kill you. And they put their necks on the ground and said, kill us, chop our heads off. Um, we, we would rather die. And, and if you kill us, there's gonna be 10,000 more of us who will come. And, um, you know, and, and Pontius realized, ooh, I got a problem here. Am I gonna, you know, he knew that his job was to go down there and make peace with the Jews. So now he's got a problem. 
probably why the Jews stuck their necks out like that because they knew that if he did that, he, he, he would get in big trouble from the Romans. So Pontius backed off there, strike one. Then trying to appease the Jews, he built sort of an aqueduct to bring water, um, to, uh, but he used the Jews' temple treasury money to do it, and that made him an enemy again. The Jews hated him for it. Strike two. And then he, he got his soldiers, uh, Pilate's soldiers, uh, got some new armor, uh, and the armor had the uh, image of Tiberius, the emperor, on their shields and on their breastplates, and the Jews flipped out when these guys would walk around Jerusalem with these images of who they claimed to be a god, Tiberius, sort of deity. So that was strike three. And you know the, the rumor is that somewhere from Rome, Tiberius and the gang said, one more incident, Pilate, you're toast. Like, you know, he'd be ordered to, I don't know what the equivalent, but you know, go serve in Siberia or something like that. Maybe that, in Pilate's mind, that would have been an improvement. Uh, no, none of the Romans enjoyed serving down in Judea where the Jews were. There's actual historical writings about that. So this might be an attempt here by you know, Pontius Pilate to say, okay, let's release a prisoner. Uh, and, um, and notice how this goes. So verse 15 says he wants to release a prisoner uh, that the people would want. So verse 16, and they had then uh, a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Now let's talk about Barabbas. This is an interesting thing. It's one of those things in the Bible you just kind of think, wow, is this kind of a coincidence or what? Putting all the, the four gospels together, here's what we know about Barabbas. We know he was a murderer. He was a thief or a famous sort of robber uh, who led a posse of robbers is kind of the idea. And he was a hated criminal, um, known to be hated by the Jews. Um, and so uh, putting up an innocent man like Jesus against the most hated criminal at their disposal, um, maybe Pontius Pilate's thinking, man, maybe this is my way to get this guy who I don't see any problem with, get him off the hook. I'll release, they'll, surely they'll want to release Jesus. Um, but there's a couple things about Barabbas that you should also know. The name Barabbas is interesting. Uh, if you look at it, the, uh, the Greek uh, you know, text of the, of the passage, the, the name Barabbas in the Greek, um, it, it's actually uh, formed by the Hebrew entomology, Bar Abba, which is, uh, is the two, two words put together, of course. Um, uh, bar meaning son and Abba meaning father. So Barabbas means son of a father. That's an interesting delineation. Um, now, it gets even more interesting because that uh, is more like a, a last name or, or even like a title. Uh, his title is son of a father. But his name, uh, uh, we know what that is. Now, we don't know that from, from if you have a King James Bible, but uh, there are some manuscripts that actually say that his name was Jesus Barabbas. And we have to kind of look at this. Um, you know, Barabbas uh, would be sort of the last, the son of the father, but his name, Yeshua or uh, Yehoshua, or um, like Joshua of the Old Testament, um, that's kind of the name he would go by. Yeshua Barabbas would be his name, which is kind of interesting. Um, you say, well, you mean he had the same name as Jesus? Yes. That's where it gets interesting because uh, we know that Jesus is both those things. Jesus, the son of the father, right? Um, what a weird thing. Like, why is that the case? Well, first of all, you need to know that Jesus is one of the most common names of that time period. Uh, it was like Bob or Bill or, you know, common names. So, you know, we know uh, that, that was like the name of Jesus. So it, uh, the, the thing that separated Jesus, son of the father from Barabbas is he was called Jesus the Christ, Barabbas was not the Christ. The Christ is not Jesus' last name. It was his title as uh, son of the living God, the, the, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Yeshua HaMashiach was the, the Christos, the, the, um, the king uh, that was to come. So that's the big difference. So this is kind of interesting. Um, uh, in Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, it says some manuscripts of Matthew 27, verses 16 and 17, give Barabbas' name, the name is Jesus Barabbas. So it's some of the oldest manuscripts put Jesus Barabbas in here. Um, while this seems to be preferred reading, some scribes probably omitted out of, uh, out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Several questions still remain uh, because we cannot answer these questions about this um, 
With certainty, it's impossible to know whether Barabbas was actually named Jesus Barabbas, but it is interesting. The older manuscripts actually do have it that way. Does any of your Bibles have Jesus Barabbas in it? Yeah, a couple, um, some of you guys do. The reason it's there is because it's in the oldest manuscripts and your translation uh, is probably one that goes with the older manuscripts rather than the quantity of manuscripts. Uh, Does that make sense? So anyway, just kind of an interesting thing that he's got the same name. Uh, Jesus. Uh, so what are you going to do? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ? Um, and that's what, um, what uh, was going to be the choice. Um, uh, we learned that he was a robber, John 18, 40. Uh, we learned that he committed murder, um, Mark 15, verse 7. Uh, and he led an insurrection, interesting terminology there, uh, against Rome, Mark 15, 7. Uh, Barabbas did. So uh, Pilate may have wanted a way out to get rid of uh, Barabbas, this problem, and he was hoping to deal with it. Well, we pick it up there in verse 17. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, whom will you that I release unto you? Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for every, uh, pardon me, for he knew that for envy, they had delivered him. Uh, interesting, uh, he knew that for envy, what, what was going on here? The Jews were envious. Uh, that's an interesting word, you know, to be envious toward uh, someone. Um, Jesus had authority. Remember how the people would say, oh, Jesus speaks as one having authority, not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees. The people followed Jesus and his leadership was le- legitimate where the people sensed something wacko about you know, the, the religious leaders of that day. Do you sense something wacko about some of the religious leaders today? I hope you and I have senses about that. You're, well, Brett, what are you? Are you one of the good ones? I sure hope so, but here's the thing. You should even check me on that. Um, we're gonna get into this because um, I think this is one of, the, one of the things that we should probably be more aware of. Pilate knew that the religious leaders delivered Jesus to be judged because they were envious of him. Um, you know, um, the leaders uh, just wanted Jesus gone, but not everybody else. Um, by the way, uh, how many people do you picture this whole commotion around Jesus? Uh, how many people were there? Were, were, were there hundreds of people saying, we gotta get this guy out of here, the Sanhedrin and all that, all the people? Well, most scholars, when they, when they think about this and put it all together, it's really about 13 men. 13 men that were saying, we gotta get rid of this Jesus. And they were big men on the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Sadducees and and what have you. But there's only about 13 of them, uh, most scholars believe. That's a pretty small little group. Um, But it's interesting how this small group's gonna stir up a big trouble. Sometimes I wonder if some of the trouble we see around our country are being stirred up by a very small group of people. Uh, and everybody's fallen for it. In fact, the whole world is falling for it. But, but to me, it's all fulfilling Bible prophecy, setting the stage for the, what, what's coming. And, and so it makes sense to me, but it is interesting. I think there's a small group of people that are stirring problems up. And that's, that's as old as this story, as it turns out. But, um, but as it turns out, these guys for envy, and Pontius knows this, you guys are just envious of him. So, so he's looking for a way to release Jesus and make Barabbas be the one killed. Um, verse 19, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him saying, have thou nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Uh-oh, his wife has some advice for him. Are you supposed to listen to your wife? There's a good question. Uh, I'll answer that in a second. Put yourself in Pontius Pilate's sandals here for a second. Remember, politically, his job's on the line. People are already angry at him. The Jews already hate him. The Romans are saying, one more mess up in your toast. And now his home life, his wife comes and says, whatever you do, don't do anything to that just man. I had a dream. Uh, don't do it. Um, and so his wife is telling him what he should do. Um, this, this is an interesting thing in the Bible, by the way. Um, should men listen to their wives? Well, the answer is... Yes and no. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, the politically correct answer. Yes and no. No. Um, as it turns out, should Pilate have probably listened to uh, you know, his, his, his wife here? 
well, yeah, I mean, if he wanted to do the right thing, we know that Jesus was doing this and, and this had to happen. Uh, we understand that. Um, but she was technically right. Jesus was just, and uh, it would have been better for Pilate to have nothing to do with it, uh, the, you know, the, the you know, death of Jesus. But all throughout the Bible, there's some interesting stories about um, you know, Abraham and Sarah, for example. There's times where Abraham should have listened to his wife, and there's times where Abraham should not have listened to his wife. Um, so what do you do with that? Like, like what, what's the time when he shouldn't have? Remember when Sarah said, hey, um, we don't have a baby yet. God promised a baby. So here's my handmaid, Hagar. Why don't you sleep with her? And then uh, we'll have a baby and God's promises will come to pass. Should, should he have listened to his beautiful wife, Sarah, at that moment? No. But there were other times Sarah gave him great wisdom that was from God. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, here's what I would say. You might think this is off course, but um, I think men are fools if they don't at least think through and pray through and talk with their wives about uh, life and decisions. I think there's great wisdom that a lot of times men miss out on uh, because they, they, they take this little bit more of an ogre, sort of, I'm in the boss, I'm, I'm in charge, uh, so I'm not gonna listen to my wife. Well, as it turns out, um, I do believe men are to lead their families. That is a true thing biblically. Hate me for it, whatever you want. But it's not me who's saying that. Um, what does the Bible say about this? This is kind of interesting. Ephesians 5.22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. That's, that's radical. And there's a lot of mean men who talk to their wives and quote this verse. The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. But they forget the first part. What does it say right before that? Well, if you do the whole verse uh, or the whole section, verse 21 and 22, it says, submitting yourselves or submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And then it says, wives submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There is an order that God has outlined in the family home relationship. Um, but, but the idea of submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, um, that's, that's where it starts. As a husband and wife team, you should submit to one another. And do it in the fear of God, knowing that, man, we could all make some real stupid mistakes in life if we're not careful. Um, I'm gonna say that most of the decisions I make about our family and our home life and stuff like that, Deb and I just mutually pray through stuff, talk about stuff, and come to a mutual agreement of what we should be doing. I'm not, you're my wife, so you know, uh, uh, you know, sit down and be quiet. Uh, the Bible says learn with all silence and subjection. By the way, there's a whole movement right now that I think is straight from the demons and from hell. And that is this whole movement to say that churches that don't have women pastors uh, or, or elders are, um, in fact, uh, there's one lady that, that's got a big podcast that she talks about all the time, but she went as far as to say, if you're basically a complementarian church where you don't have women pastors, you're a cult. So now, now the, the, what the church has believed for centuries and the Bible actually teaches, and now you're a cult if you uh, don't have women pastors and elders. And they create this false dilemma to the, that women can't have any role in the churches. And they, they try to you know, say things about churches like Athe Creek or, or those that are believe in complementarian. We believe women and men are to be complementary one to another. We complement each other. Not competing, but completing. Uh, but... Uh, and also, another thing I have to say is um, uh, I would love for some of our amazing women at Eighth Creek to debate some of these ladies at George Fox University. Uh, I would love it uh, because, you know, they act like a church like Eighth Creek. We've had George Fox professors tell some of our kids here, whatever you do, you can go to all these wonderful churches, but don't go to Eighth Creek Christian Fellowship. They say that at George Fox. And the reason they say that is largely because we don't have women pastors and elders. Um, and so uh, I would love to have those ladies over there that are you know, pushing you know, that whole um, egalitarian view uh, and saying that churches like Athey Creek are horrible because we, we don't have women pastors. I would love to have, because we have some amazingly strong, bright, talented, capable women at Athey Creek that know the scriptures and they're far from being you know, beaten down. or it's, it's ridiculous, it's ridiculous. The whole thing's ridiculous. And so all that to say, I would be a fool as a husband to not really love to have my wife's uh, uh, mutual discussion about life and following the Lord and our family and stuff like that. I think that's a, a big false dilemma that they kind of do either or.
But all that to say, um, you know, uh, there were other times where Abraham should have listened to Sarah and, and he should. See, this is where we submit to one another in the fear of God, because that's, that's what comes first. No matter who we're listening to, we need to fear the Lord, follow his word. Um, and by the way, uh, when it, the buck does stop, it stops with the husband. God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the husband responsible for the final decisions uh, when it comes to that. There have been a few times in our married life where Debbie has had to say, man, we, we've prayed about this. We don't necessarily agree on this, but she would defer and say, because you're the leader of our home, I'm gonna defer to your wisdom on this. And you know what, what do I do when I get that green light from Debbie? Do I go, <laughs> I'm finally in charge. Is that what I do? No, no, actually when Debbie says that to me, I'm thinking, oh no. As a man, I, I, I don't wanna be you know, totally hanging out there by myself. Um, and there's been a few decisions where I've had to really seek the Lord and Debbie kind of said, Brad, I'm gonna leave this uh, up to you and, and the Lord's showing you what we're supposed to do. Now, by the way, when a husband's an ogre, he's missing the whole point. In the same chapter, Ephesians 5, 21, 22, you go a little further, it says, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Um, that, you show me a man that's doing that, I'll show you a wife that's gonna be in love with her husband and they're gonna, there's gonna be a good marriage because that's such a key. Um, so all that, you know, even praying about moving to Portland, that was one of those big decisions. Debbie, uh, you know, was not really feeling like, uh, you know, we had all our friends and family member down in Southern Oregon. We kind of grew up down there and, um, and to move and start a church and not knowing anyone, that was a bit of a stretch. And they're, they're, we talked about it, prayed about it. And there was a point where she just said, you, you need to do what the Lord's calling you to do. And I know that was hard for her to get to that point. Um, but I am thankful that there is a biblical model of the way that's supposed to work out. Our world hates it. And even the church is starting to teach against that idea. Um, and what a sad thing, the Lord has given us roles and he, he gave assignments. And a lot of the world, even the church saying, yeah, whatever, we don't like your assignments and we're gonna do it the way we think we should do it. I think that's only gonna work out badly for humanity. Um, what if your husband makes a horrible mistake, Pastor Brett? Uh, we'll just ask Debbie, I'm sure she could tell you uh, a few good examples. But, but like Sarah of the Old Testament, the Lord covers the wife, even if the husband makes a stupid decision. Remember the stupid decision where Abraham took his wife to Egypt and thought, oh man, you're so hot. Um, even though you're 80, I know that Pharaoh's gonna want want to have you um, in the harem, you know? Uh, and he was right. Pharaoh's like, whoo, the, the, the servants of Pharaoh said, there's this lady that just came to town. And uh, they said, uh, you know, get her, get her for the harem. And, and, and Abraham said, tell them you're my sister because they'll kill me and put you in the harem. And uh, so Abraham told his wife to lie and say, you're my sister. Well, the story goes where sure enough, Pharaoh takes her into the harem and just as he's about to mess around with Sarah, God speaks to Pharaoh and says, you are a dead man. Pharaoh's like, what did I do? You've taken another man's wife. Yeah, but she's not my wife. Hey, he said she was the sister. The Lord says, I don't care, you're still a dead man. <laughs> who, who was God protecting there? Well, Sarah had the Lord standing on her side. That's exactly what happens to the wife that submits to her husband. And even if he makes a harebrained decision, the Lord covers and Abraham and Sarah left Egypt with all kinds of possessions. Pharaoh gave them all kinds of flocks and herds and wealth and said, now get out of town. And it was because of Sarah that all happened, not because of Abraham, um, because she was uh, saying, I'm gonna submit to my husband. Like, like this is a radical worldview and it goes against what a lot of people teach and say today. But can I just, I just wanna caution you. The church of Jesus Christ, man, we've gotta be ever so careful today because there's so much stupidity coming from the pulpits. I'll show you more of that as we get further in this. But back to Matthew 27. Um, you know, his wife here, by the way, she's somewhat kind of famous outside of the Bible. Her name is Claudia Procula. Um, the Bible doesn't really give us much about her, but there are some extra biblical writings. If you're a Catholic and you were raised with the Apocrypha, which um, you know was sort of added to scripture centuries later, but it, it's not really inspired scripture. It's interesting reading to a degree, the Apocrypha, um, but like, uh, what was it? The book of Nathaniel, the gospel of Nathaniel as it's called. Um, what's it, it's also, there's another name. It's something like the, um, the uh, Acts of 
um, the Acts of Pontius Pilate uh, is another name for the, the Gospel of Nathaniel. Uh, you say, Brad, why are you talking about an extra biblical book? Uh, well, it is interesting because that book goes into this woman a little bit more, Procula, but also uh, extra biblical history says that she um, actually later became a devout believer in Christ and, and one of the key figures in the early church. Uh, kind of an interesting tradition about her. Uh, if you follow the history of it, some of the Greek Orthodox and uh, uh, other, you know, denominations have actually, you know, the, the churches like the Catholic Church that tends to saint people? Um, they, uh, they sainted uh, Claudia Procula because they believe she was a key figure in the early church. Um, kind of interesting, um, but she, um, uh, they say she actually converted to Judaism uh, at some point when she was in that region. Uh, but ultimately after Jesus's resurrection, she then converted to Christianity. Kind of interesting. Um, what about Pontius Pilate and what happened to him in the long run? Well, there's two stories about him and we'll get into that later uh, if we have time. So I'll, I'll get into that. It's kind of interesting stories. But Matthew 27, back to the 27, it says there, um, so what does Pilate do with Procula's you know, advice? Verse 20 but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Isn't it interesting that these 13 guys could go around Jerusalem and start convincing everybody, oh yeah, whatever you do. Remember Barabbas you know, was the most hated criminal in, in Jerusalem and they were able to convince whatever you do, we'll let Barabbas go and make sure that Jesus the Christ is gonna be uh, you know, it's amazing because the same crowds, the same multitude was earlier crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, how fickle people are and how fickle crowds really are. Uh, they're even more fickle. Um, there's something about crowds that are real dangerous. If you find yourself in a mob or a crowd, be very careful. Mobs can get you in trouble real fast. Uh, it's amazing all these flash mobs we're seeing around the country. And now with social media, people are gathering uh, and they can do it all on social media and get everything ready. And then all of a sudden it just happens. Seemingly in the middle of nowhere, suddenly a mob starts doing stuff. But that, there's nothing good that really happens with mobs. The mob mentality always gets you off course. And you know, the old lynch mob or those kinds of horrible parts of our history and stuff, it's always a bad situation. Um, whenever you get into a big mob, you can, you can have a condition called group numbing because everybody's doing the same thing. And so you think, well, it must be okay because they're all doing it. So I can be a part of this because it's all good. Group numbing uh, in a large concentrated area, um, people, immoral behavior is easier to get into in some ways. Uh, humanity, is, it's been said, humanity is like manure. Spread out, it's like fertilizer. and does a lot of good. Clumped together, they just stink. <laughs> that's why in these big cities, the big cities around our country, that's where some of the most horrible sins are being committed. It's this group-numbing mob, mob mentality that we, uh, we, we should watch out for that as Christians. Um, if we're not careful, the church can become the mob if we have wrong information and we aren't walking in truth. The church can start doing stuff that's totally opposed to what God actually ever wanted. And, and suddenly everybody's like, yeah, 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 amen, amen, even though it's totally off. Um, just because someone's a religious leader doesn't mean they have the authority to speak on God's behalf and lead in truth. That's what these Sanhedrin guys are. They're going around Jerusalem saying, whatever you do, let's get Jesus the Christ crucified. But Barabbas let him go. They were so wrong. But the people fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Um, Brett, what are you talking about? Come on, there's, some, there's a lot of good churches. Oh, I know, there's, there's good churches. But are you aware how bad the church, the condition of the church in America is? Uh, I found this clip a couple weeks ago. Maybe uh, this, I, I hesitate even showing you this, but you, I want you to see when, when, when our president um, talks about how transgender people are created in the image of God. When our president, the president of the United States just, a couple weeks ago said that. Um, where does he get that theology? Well, as it turns out, there's plenty of clerical people who are saying stuff like this. Let me just give you this little snippet. God is gay. God is a lesbian. God is trans. God is gender non-binary. God is straight. God is cisgender. 
God is black, God is white, God is Middle Eastern, God is Asian, God is differently abled mentally and physically, God is able-bodied. God is you, and you are God, because you are a reflection of God's divine image. Um, boy, he speaks with such authority. Um, man, he thinks, you'd think, well, he must know what he's talking about. Well, Brett, who believes that craziness? The president of the United States. He's quoting like from guys like this when he's you know, speaking of religion. Um, this is what's growing out there. And I hope you understand, Portland, we've got our fill of these churches that are talking like this. Um, I think that, I, I'm not sure that we Christians know how, um, how radically um, transformative this is to our nation. When churches, uh, you know, it's one thing when schools and colleges and universities say crazy stuff, but when the churches so-called say stuff like this, man, uh, so many people are being led astray. Um, I heard a CNN uh, anchor ask a pastor once, how do you know the mind of God? And his response, I'm like, oh, here's a great opportunity to say a good answer. And the pastor said this, I just feel like this is what God would want for America. Can I just tell you that's a bad answer? Um, <laughs> weak, painful. So Brett, are you suggesting that you know the mind of God? Absolutely, yes. Well, that's arrogant. That's horrible for you to think you know the mind of God. No, listen, the, re the reason I know the mind of God and the reason you also know the mind of God is because of this right here. It's not that I have a monopoly on the mind of God, nor does anyone else. But as it turns out, God speaks out to humanity and gives us his miraculous book, the Bible, and says, this is my mind. This is what I want for people to know. And that's why we have the scriptures. And, and what are we supposed to do? This is where we go. And, and I, I mention this all the time. And you gotta do this with everybody, whether it's the guy in the rainbow clerical garb or Pastor Brett in his shorts. Either way, <laughs> either way, you gotta act 1711 at these people, um, the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. That's what we all need to be just brutally careful to do every single time. Search the scriptures daily to see if what's being said is, is so. And people have had, you know, thousands of years to study the Bible now and to get it down. But can I just say this? People have also had now a couple thousand years to start tweaking and twisting and contorting the word to fit their own agenda. And so we need to rise above that, the, the twisting of scripture. And, you know, it gets, gets as goofy as God is love and love is love. So gay people should be able to love each other. And we shouldn't be critical of that because love is up. That's so ridiculous. Um, and the reason why, first of all, um, love, uh, it, it's, it's a word that the Bible defines very carefully, and, 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 but love does not behave unrighteously or sinfully. Um, the love is love mantra means that um, anything goes. If someone loves someone, anything goes. What's wrong with polygamy? Why not let a man have 12 wives? Um, or, or worse still, uh, you know, like, like the whole pedophile group, uh, there's all kinds of people trying to push now, you know, sex with younger people and children and things. What's wrong? It's love is love, love is love. That's the mantra. And they just, you know, they just try to act like the Bible supports that. Um, the Bible, if you read your whole Bible, you'll know that homosexuality is called an abomination. Uh, you're to be the husband of one, one wife. God created male and female, did he create them? Uh, and that's what marriage is by definition in the Bible. Jesus said that. Like all this stuff that the world's trying to <laughs> freak out on, um, we've just got God's mind right here. And it's so wonderful to be able to have an anchor in a time where people are just being really loose with morality and truth, so-called, falsely so-called. Search the scriptures daily. That's what you and I are called to do. We need to be more about that than ever today. Well, um, back to Matthew 27, verse 21. It says, um, the governor answered and said to them, whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said unto them, what shall I do with then with uh, Jesus, which is called Christ. And they all said unto him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? 
What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more saying, let him be crucified. There's a couple things about Pontius Pilate just to observe, and, and especially if you're a leader of some kind, which I think all of us lead to some degree in different ways, shapes, and forms. But you wanna know what a good example of a, not a good leader is, Pontius Pilate's one of them. Um, he can't make up his own wise decisions and lead uh, with wisdom. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little painful to watch this guy, well, what do I need to do? He's asking the crowd, help me out here. You know, and they're just, they're just telling him what to do. And, and he doesn't know how to lead. That's, that's something. I love when you watch Jesus's leadership. He, you know, Jesus was the perfect leader. Um, and he knew exactly what he was doing. Pontius Pilate uh, really doesn't know how to lead. Um, he knows Jesus is innocent, but he makes the wrong choice to sort of please the crowd to save his job. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what uh, Pontius Pilate does. And then, um, uh, you know, uh, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see you to it. Then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and our children. Whew. Um, there's a few things here that we have to kind of, can you imagine people that, now who's saying his blood be on us and our children? This is the Jews. Now I have to be careful here because um, uh, the Jewish people might be really mad at me at first, but if you listen to the whole thing I'm gonna say, you might be okay afterward. Um, did the Jews crucify Jesus? Yes, they did. Remember when Mel Gibson made his first, you know, Passion of the Christ movie? I guess he's working on the resurrection section of it. But when Mel Gibson had the Passion of the Christ movie, um, the Jews all over the world started protesting, saying, he makes it as if the Jews crucified Jesus, the Christ. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some things I could pick apart about Passion of the Christ movie, because there's some Catholic little things that he interjected in there that are just not even really in the Bible. The little cloth that Jesus put on his face, and the you know, Catholics say that's, you know, there's all kinds of things I could talk about. But one of the things he did depict is the Jews were yelling, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And that is, in fact, biblical. But even more, like, painful, the Jews said, and let his blood be on our heads and our children. And isn't it interesting that that actually came to pass in some degree? Now, here's where I have to kind of make up for what I just said, because Jews might be saying, you'll blame us for Jesus. Well, it's the Jews' fault, and then it was the Romans' fault, because the Jews you know, couldn't kill Jesus, so the Romans were left to do it, and the Romans actually killed Jesus. So it was the Jews and the Romans? Yeah, but there's some more dastardly people involved with this whole thing too. You and me. It was my sin, my evil, horrible sin that sent Jesus to the cross. So um, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. We're all guilty. So anybody that's trying to point out the Jews as being the single uh, catalyst of Jesus's crucifixion, you just don't know the whole story. Um, we all sent Jesus to the cross. And we, we might even say his, his blood be on us and our children. And here's the thing about that. That's true unless... You accept what he was doing for you on the cross. The only way to get out of this curse of his blood be on our heads, because it is, the only way to get out of that is to say, forgive me, wash me, save me by your blood um, and, and forgive me for my sins and be repentant. To repent and accept Jesus Christ is the only way you don't have the curse of sin and death um, on your head. And that's true for Jew, Roman, Gentile, anybody who's ever lived on the planet, you still gotta repent. We're all guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. Um, his blood be on us and our children. By the way, um, Adolf Hitler, who sort of claimed sort of in a weird way to be a Christian, he was not. Don't let your college professor tell you that Adolf Hitler was a Christian. Uh, that's, that's ridiculous that, he would, that anybody would say that, but they, they do say that today. But Adolf Hitler, one of his main points was trying to eradicate the Jews, uh, ethnically cleanse the world of Jews. Um, and, that, and he would call this, if you ever have read Mein Kampf and all the, the stuff that Adolf Hitler said, he would call them Christ killers, the Jews. Um, sort of rationalizing why the Jews needed to be killed. And he would even quote this, his blood be on us and our children. And he felt like it was his job to make sure that curse was carried out on the Jews. Adolf Hitler was not a Christian, but used Christianity 
as ammunition for his politics. That, that's an interesting thing, using Christianity as your ammunition in politics. Um, and and I, I think that's an important thing for us to watch out for, politicians using Christianity for their politics. Watch out for that. It's a dangerous place to be. But it says he washed his hands before the multitude there in verse 24. Um, what's, what's with the washing of hands? Was that a Roman tradition? Well, this is where it gets kind of strange. That's not a Roman tradition at all. It was a Jewish thing. In fact, uh, washing hands in public was not Roman at all, but it was a Jewish tradition. It's almost as if Pontius Pilate is trying to appease the Jews by everything he does, letting Jesus be turned over to the cross, letting Barabbas be relieved, and even the washing of his hands. Um, it's fulfilling what Deuteronomy, apparently Pontius Pilate knew uh, one of the Jewish laws. It's Deuteronomy 21. You can jot this down, verses five through seven. It says, and the priests and the sons of Levi shall come near for them. The Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every uh, stroke be tr tried. And all the elders of that city that are next to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. When someone innocent that was on trial is not cleared of the charges, they would go and wash their hands uh, symbolically in public, uh, fulfilling this Deuteronomy you know, 21 scripture. Uh, and some would say, this is Pontius Pilate trying to appease the Jews again. Um, so, uh, Christianity, uh, you know, trying to work out in politics hasn't worked out, by the way, very good. Remember I told you about Joseph Biden's uh, little thing that he said in, um, this is a, a New York Post article. Biden says, trans people made in the image of God, parents must affirm identity. This is heartbreaking because um, the affirming of this identity is only hurting people. Um, and this is a biblical notion, but the world is just hook, line, and sinker. Every TV show, every movie that you watch is gonna have some, something about the transgender and affirming and making sure that we open the door to little children being starting the process. And, and it's, it's just, again, people just doing what they want. And here's our president speaking about the Bible, trying to affirm something that's just totally evil and wicked. This is happening today. I'm just saying, Washington Examiner, um, God is transgender? Uh, pastor and con uh, congressional candidate asks after the Biden uh, video. One pastor, uh, Willie, uh, I don't know anything about this pastor, Willie Montague, um, but he does say this, a pastor um, and a congressional candidate in Florida's 10th congressional district um, had a few comments on Biden's thing. When someone struggles with gender dysphoria, um, we are to love them and help them, Montague said, which I agree with. But the left's new attempt to normalize and promote uh, critical gender ideology has, uh, has no scriptural basis and is corrosive to our society. Um, uh, he goes on, like most things Biden says, this is hard to decode. By saying transgenders are made in the image of God, is he uh, stating that God is transgender? more foolishness from this doctrinally illiterate president. And let me just say, just about every president we've had is doctrinally illiterate. The speech writers, I could help them out if they called old Pastor Brett if, before they put the, I, I'm amazed at what presidents say for the most part uh, when they're quoting the Bible. From either side of the political aisle, it's always a disaster when these guys start quoting scripture, just, just for the record. Um, but um, you, know, you know what we really need today with all this kind of news and stuff? I, I, I do think there's some similarities uh, in, in, in what we're seeing today. Uh, not as much with you know, Trump and Jesus and all that ridiculousness, but I see the same sort of ideas and the same way that the people and Pilate and all the people are derailed into falsities, I see that same derailing happening today. And um, we can learn from this passage. What do we need? You know, we need people to accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. We need people to submit to the, the Bible, the, the book we're holding in our hands and let it be our anchor instead of letting the whims of humanity say, oh, in the last 10 minutes, okay. So, uh, you know, tra tra transgender dysphoria is not even a word anymore. We don't wanna call it dysphoria because that's such a negative connotation. Like the, we've changed our morals every 10 minutes. 
Um, I love that we have the anchor of God's word. Uh, we need to stick with the scripture. Um, also, what I, can I challenge you while we're on that topic? We need to be praying for this country. Uh, the more I see what's happening in this country, the more I realize to Tocqueville was right. Uh, you know, as, as soon as America ceases from being good, it will cease from being great. And I think we're there. I hate to admit it, but I think we're there. Uh, so we need to be praying. Best thing, preach the gospel. Uh, no matter what political uh, side of the uh, argument you're on, we need to submit to God's word, pray, seek the Lord. You know, um, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is such a key um, to truly love the Lord. St. Augustine was right. Love, the, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who's beloved. Pilate here in our story is trying to be a leader and making decisions, but failing miserably because he's, he's moved by the multitudes. We need to be moved by God's word. Well, we continue verse 26. It says there, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus, oh, pardon me, verse 26, then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Um, uh, this, this, uh, this is where um, Jesus was turned over to be scourged. This is one of the stops on the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem that you can go to. I'd like to talk about that just for a second. If you're walking on the, the, the road, the Via Della Rosa, today in Jerusalem, this road is actually not the one Jesus walked on uh, because that road would have been 30 feet or 40 feet under the surface. Everything Jesus was on was about 30 feet below the surface. But here's some Athey Creekers. We're walking down this little Via Della Rosa road and, um, and, and when you get to this certain place, you come to this uh, spot called the Church of the Flagellation. Um, and it's where they believe Jesus was uh, whipped by the Roman soldiers. We talked about the fla uh, flagellum and the whipping on Sunday. Um, and I'm sorry I made everybody queasy. In fact, one guy fainted during the service, one of the services. I feel bad about that. But we were talking about the cross, and I'm sorry, we gotta talk about it. But this, this church sort of commemorates um, you know, where that happened. Uh, they're uh, looking down on us as the mosque, of course, but that's Steve, the tour guide. That's, that's a guy that we love to listen to and he's one of our guys. But, uh, but um, th there's, it's kind of a somber place because um, in this location, um, um, you can kind of remember what Jesus did being whipped. There's a stone that's set there that they believe was one of the stones that they would use during that time. And there's different theories. This is the stone here of how they used it. Um, but they believe that it was, uh, it was somehow um, fastened to a pole and then the, the person would be, his, his hands would be sort of locked onto this stone and ropes would go through those holes, sort of locking his arms into place and then they would whip him and, and like it's a torturous device. And that, that's the stone of this church of the flagellation. But all that to say, um, th this is where, uh, th this is the, the, the first you know, uh, stop of where the, the whole thing started taking place. He goes on in um, verse 27. It says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Um, and when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put on his own raiment and led him away to crucify him. You know, the thing that I think of when I think about this is the gift of substitution or propitiation. Uh, the fancy doctoral word that means that he was the satisfaction of what was required of me and of you. Um, I'm so thankful for that propitiation, uh, the substitution. Because when I read this story, I, I realize this should have been us. You need to see this. This should have been me, you know, that deserves this. But Jesus willingly, he was sent here to do this so we wouldn't have to. And even if we get a little queasy about the blood and the things that Jesus had to go through, I think we need to realize how ugly our sins really are and how beautiful redemption really is. Well, verse 32, and as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. 
Now, by the way, uh, do, you, do you notice that, that um, Matthew is leaving out some details? You're like, well, what about this? And what about that? Well, Matthew does leave out some details. We're gonna see that. When you compare the gospels, like Matthew's not gonna talk about the nails being driven into his hands and feet. Uh, you think, well, that's kind of a big deal. Um, well, each one of the gospel writers give us the summary when we kind of look at the whole thing together. But this interesting sideline of the story is Simon of Cyrene. Where is Cyrene? Well, it's actually what we know today as modern day Libya, um, just west of Egypt in Africa. Simon was uh, probably, probably a convert to Judaism. Uh, there were men from Africa that were con converts to Judaism by this time, um, but they would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's what probably Simon was doing there, most scholars believe. Um, there for the Passover, but it was also customary for Roman soldiers. And when we put the Bible story together on Simon, the Romans, they would take the tip of their spear and tap someone on the shoulder. And if they did that to you, you had to do whatever they told you to do. Um, remember Jesus talked about, you know, if somebody wants you to walk, with, you know, carry their cloak for a mile, walk with them two miles. That's the idea. If a Roman soldier taps you and says, I need you to carry my armor, you were supposed to carry their armor. You were, you, you were subservient to the Romans. You had to do what they said. So Simon the Cyrene gets tapped by the Romans saying, you're gonna carry this beam of this, uh, this cross. Um, and um, maybe the Romans had a schedule to keep. Maybe they were running behind. They're like, well, we gotta get this thing moving. Um, I wonder if Simon thought, why me? Why was I tapped? Uh, just there to celebrate Passover. The thing I like about Simon of Cyrene is there's evidence, small as it is, but there's evidence that this would lead ultimately to Simon's salvation. How do we know that Simon probably became a believer and follower of Jesus? Well, it is one thing to carry his cross and see him suffer. I mean, that could do it right there. But there's some interesting evidence. In fact, it's Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 21. Um, it says, and they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Why, why does Mark's gospel say, hey, by the way, this is the, the father of, of, of Rufus um, and uh, Alexander? Well, um, it's kind of cool because in Romans 16, verse 13, Paul the apostle says this, um, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Um, this is funny. Paul calls Rufus's mother like his own mother. And who is Rufus? Probably the son of Simon, Simon the Cyrene. And Rufus's mother was probably Simon's wife. And they had become a key part of the early church, which is kind of cool. I like this. Uh, Rufus and his family became a key part of the church. Um, uh, all that to say, one of the things I do like about what Paul says here is the church can become sort of a spiritual family. I do like that. Um, I hope you, you get to know people at Athey Creek to where you start becoming like family. It takes work in a church our size, but it's well worth it. Um, find people after church, say, hey, let's go get something to eat. Let's go hang out. Let's go grab a coffee. Uh, get small groups of you together. And uh, if you're worried about things getting weird, uh, Brett, what if it's an ax murderer that's sitting next to me at Athey Creek? It could be. But to be on the safe side, maybe, maybe be a bunch of different people and get together and, and hang out. And I love what's happening with watch parties and small groups. We're seeing some of the best fellowship and friendships developing uh, online more than even in the building here. It's kind of a shocker to see how the Lord's using that. But um, I really do worry that we're not tapping into the, the family of the church. But I like how Paul says, yeah, um, Rufus's mother is like my mother. You know, you like that. Um, um, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians chapter two, Paul, remember he said, we have ministered to you like a nurse, a nursing mom, cherishes her children, like brothers and like fathers, we ministered among you. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, seven through 12. Uh, I think that's an important thing. We all need to plug in, get to know people and enjoy the family of the church. Well, uh, verse 33, uh, we'll finish up here in a minute. It says, and when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and they, um, when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink it. 
Now, this place of the skull is interesting. We do believe we know where that very possibly could be. Don't know for sure, but there's a place in Jerusalem called Gordon's Tomb where um, it's possible that Jesus was buried at Gordon's Tomb. This is some video footage we got there at Gordon's Tomb. Um, and it's a place that there's nine requirements for, for this location to be possibly the place. All nine requirements are met here. But one of the requirements is a hill nearby where the crucifixion would have happened next to a garden where the tomb was. And this hill is called um, today in Jerusalem, uh, Golgotha. And it looks like the hill of a skull. It's, so you walk through this beautiful garden. Um, there was a cistern, an ancient first century cistern. And, and then you come to the bus station, which is right to our right. And then you look up on the top of this hill and that's, that's where they believe the cross was put. Now, um, what's interesting about this, I've been going to Jerusalem for you know almost 30 years now. And um, there used to be a, a part of this hill that looked more like a skull. It was kind of fun um, because you call that the hill of skull. They're like, I see it. There's the eyes and the nose and everything. Um, can you see it here? Uh, what happened was there was an earthquake a few years back and it knocked some of this cliff around a little bit. But um, uh, here, I'll show you where it, what it used to look like. Um, so there's that little pillar there that you can almost see. Uh, Micah put in a little uh, a skull here so we can kind of <laughs> see, see it there. Uh, um, but um, but uh, that, that, that hill of the skull, uh, they believe it happened on the top of that where the three crosses would have stood, just outside of the ancient walls of Jerusalem, uh, which is kind of important uh, and what have you. Um, but uh, all that to say, um, the, the place... I believe that's possible is, is a good place for us to go. We go to here uh, as one of our last stops in Jerusalem and see the garden tomb as well. Pretty cool. Um, well, all that to say, back to finishing up here for the night, verse 34, they gave him you know, vinegar to drink mixed with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink it. Uh, what was this? Um, th this was probably wine mixed with sort of gall. It was a drink... And it's debatable why the Romans would do this. It was, but, but most agree it was meant to prolong the crucifixion process. Um, whether it was to prolong by easing the pain, sort of as an anesthetic that would let them suffer longer and not pass out from the pain, um, be able to bear the pain without passing out, or was it meant to uh, just be mean to them? It wasn't meant to be nice, that's for sure. Um, but Jesus refused the drink of the mixture um, he wanted to seem to be in complete control of his senses while he was hanging on the cross. Um, so this is one of those references we'll learn more about in the other gospels as well. Verse 35, <clears throat> and they, <clears throat> they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. This is, of course, the prophet given in Psalm 22. They parted my garments among them and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. So um, where was this prophecy? Is Psalm 22, verse 18. You can jot that down in your notes. This is a messianic psalm about the parting of Jesus's lots uh, or garments. The casting of lots was actually an interesting thing. Did you know the Romans actually had games that they played out of boredom? Um, and there's a question about what, how did they cast lots and stuff like that. But one of the things when we go around, and not to over video, but I'm trying to get you on some of these locations without you happen to go to Jerusalem. One of those things is they, they found one of these places where Romans would play games. And there's, there's one that's interesting on the Via Della Rosa route. Um, here's a bunch of Athey Creekers as we're getting, uh, walking around this whole Via Della Rosa. There's Dimitri. Um, but we're all kind of uh, walking up through the Arab quarter here. You can see down in that hole, that's, that's going down to the first century. That's what you have to do. Look down in holes when you see original. But you go down these stairs and you can actually get down to first century level uh, bedrock. And there's actually places where Antonio's fortress, where Jesus would have been there. And um, there's an interesting game called the King's Game. And they found this archeologically etched in the stone at San Antonio's fortress where the Praetorium was. And um, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's called uh, Basilis or Basilicus, uh, also known as the Game of the Kings. Uh, it was a favorite, so you can see that there's actually uh, writings on this ancient 2,000-year-old stone. Um, it was a favorite pastime for the Romans. A large number would sit around um, and uh, they, they, uh, they, they would be played uh, sort of like a board game, like what we would do today. 
Um, in the Roman army's version of Basilicus or the king's game, the winner of each round of the game would get to choose the different ways to torture the prisoner in the guard's collective charge. Now, by the way, this is a true story. Before that, the, the Romans could, could do stuff to each other. They'd play the game, and if you play the game, you can punch him in the face five times. That's the way they played this. And so they'd play, and whoever lost got punched five times. The problem was they were starting to kill some of the Romans by this game. So the Romans outlawed the king's game for Romans to play themselves. So the Romans said, well, you can do this. You can play the game, but you can only make the punishment for the prisoners. You can di dictate that, which is kind of interesting. Um, and this, and by the way, outside of the Bible, there's a story of Romans playing this game and what they did, they would, they, one of the guys included dressing the prisoner up as a king and in turn mocking and abusing the victim prior to his act of execution. Kind of interesting that that's even outside of the Bible, interesting information. Well, I'm almost done. I said that before, but a um, couple more verses. Verse 37 and they set, a, uh, they set up over his head the, uh, his accusation written, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Um, then were the two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. Um, and also, uh, um, then verse 39, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him uh, with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver now him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Uh, one thing before we pack it up, notice these guys admitted stuff that they probably shouldn't be admitting. He saved others, but can he save himself? They're admitting that he saved others. Like that's amazing, the, the, the hard-headedness of these guys. Um, quoting his own word, that they, they knew what his claims were. He claimed to be God. He, they knew his claims and they even knew his power to save others. But here's the difference, they knew about Jesus and what he did, but they didn't know Jesus personally. Satan knows Jesus, knows about Jesus, but does he know him as a savior? That's, that's the thing we have to ask ourselves. So many people knew about Jesus and knew that he saved others and knew that he did miracles and knew that he did this, that, and the other thing, but they didn't turn their lives over to Jesus. That's where it's at. And we'll talk further about all of this as we get into it deeper next week. So let's close up right there. Lord, uh, we are thankful so much for this story. It's, it's almost too great to just cover in a small evening of Bible study, but um, Lord, soften our hearts to the cross and the process and the whole thing that happened. Uh, Lord, we're reminded of such a great truth that um, he who knew no sin literally became sin on our behalf, dying for the sins of the world, willingly, purposefully, how thankful we are. Lord, I pray for this congregation, those that are here, those that are watching online, help us to let our worldview be dictated by your word and not by the world and not by people that speak with authority seemingly, but help us let your word be our standard. Uh, anchor us to your word, Lord. Uh, I pray for stability, Lord, in this group, even if the pressure mounts and people get angry because of our worldview is in line with your word. Help us not to be people of fear, but to stand on truth and be unwilling to waver, Lord. Give us strength in these days we're living, I pray. So bless these your people who've taken time in your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.